Hey, murder lovers, my name is Mackenzie. And this is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back, murder lovers. <laughs> murder lovers. Murder lovers. <laughs> that we need to address i mean yes and no this is old news by the time this goes up but Gillen maxwell mm-hmm. can we take bets on what's gonna happen to her <laughs> on when she's gonna get suicided first of all jeffrey epstein didn't kill himself right. second i don't think okay i'm gonna go out on a limb here i don't think she's gonna die i think she is you think so okay mm-hmm. so the bets are is she going to die or isn't she going to die? If she doesn't die, what happens to her? Because something's going to happen to her. Right. She's already made it known she is not going to say anything about Prince Andrew. So there's that, maybe, that bullet off of her back. But do the Clintons gonna, are a wild force. Do you think she's going to go and name any names, though? No. And so that's the thing. I think there's so much pressure from, obviously, a lot of places and people and a lot of deep wallets that she I don't think she's going to get to the point where she would even get to name any names if she had the opportunity to. I mean, they'd have to make her a really sweet deal and then it, even if they did make her a really sweet deal, they'd have to then put her in some type of protection program. Oh, absolutely. And as we learned from Jeffrey Epstein, those protection programs mean squat because so. those pockets are deep. I don't know. I just feel like it'd be too obvious if she died at this point, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. Not only that, but I think, it, well. What if something happened to the prison in general? Mm, ooh. <laughs> now you're talking. Like, what if, like, terrorist attack, but Stop also not? You know, or there was, like, an earthquake or just something very mysterious happened at the place where she, there was a fire or, or something like that. Or a COVID breakout and they had to rehouse everyone. You know, there's, well, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, and my conspiracy theory brain side just went full on Reddit mode. And there's a lot of things that are strange that are already happening. Right. Like so, the BB, like the BBC So there was a article. fake, fake, air quotes. Absolutely fake. Of a BBC article that was released early. It was dated for like Ju- July 11th, mm-hmm. saying that she was um, dying of COVID, basically. That she was in intensive care because of COVID. COVID. So what's being said is that mm-hmm. the article is fake. It's photoshopped, everything like that. And all I'm going to say about that is, what if they're lying about it being fake? Oh, absolutely. Comes all the way to the top. There's so, I mean, I won't get into what other conspiracy theories um, or what other events have happened tragic events have happened where the media accidentally releases stuff early yeah even by hours Mm -hmm. but that would make a huge difference from the moment that news breaks yeah so i think well and the bbc is a british it's a a, reputable company but it's a british news source Mm -hmm. prince andrew is one of the main conversation points yeah everybody's looking at him him and the clintons we're all looking and I'm just saying nothing seems like a coincidence at this point. Oh, absolutely not. And maybe I sound like entirely paranoid, but I really think when it comes to Jeffrey Epstein, I don't think anything is a coincidence. And now there's also, I saw an article today that said that she was put into suicide watch. 
So I think they're preemptively Kinda like putting him? stuff out. Yep. Interesting. That's what I was saying. I think she's going to be suicided. Suicided. Yep. <laughs> Used it as a verb. Yep. <laughs> so that's one thing. But speaking of COVID, now we know she hasn't contracted COVID. So that was either a fake article or just, you know, false reports or... I mean, they'll say it's fake. Whatever the case is, we don't... I guess she doesn't have it, right? Well, at least we know she's not in ICU. Yeah. So, speaking of COVID, I saw a story today which blew my mind. A mom took her daughter to a church COVID party. What? That's a thing. Like a chicken pox party. Oh, no. Do you ever hear? I mean, I've heard I've heard of worse parties, honestly. (laughs) I've heard of worse. Trust me. But a COVID party and her daughter became infected and died a couple days shy of her 17th birthday. That to me is fucking murder. I agree. That is murder. Especially. It's not (sighs) chicken pox. It's not something that has 100% survivability there's no cure for it so at this point you don't willingly go that's suicide yeah well if you're doing it for yourself but if you did it to someone else if you drag them along that's murder it's just it's such a strange judgment call to make about something that we know so little about this is a lot different than doing a chicken pox party where it's like this is like that's a disease that we know a lot about it's Mm -hmm. a, a very common thing for parents to do right like what is, get it over the with, survival get it rate done. for chickenpox right. is what 99.5 percent mm-hmm. or something like that i'm making up numbers but right. like versus covid just like where there's just still a lot of unknowns yeah that seems ridiculous to me yeah so don't go to covid parties first of all <laughs> <laughs> don't engage in covid parties please don't but speaking of well i'm calling it crazy group of people getting together and following what they believe is right, I bring... Such as a cult? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and I know we were speaking in the last episode about eventually doing Charles Manson, so really interesting topic. Cults to me, I... Again, this is one of my root things. Yeah. This, this Jonestown thing, because it's um, it's it's fascinating. But you haven't said that that's what you're doing, oh, but... I'm doing Jonestown. <laughs> <laughs> That was, like, one of the things when I watched Waco recently on Netflix, Mm -hmm. which if you haven't watched it, what are you doing? Second, like, find a pillow to cry into afterwards because it's so just, ugh. These are such an awful feeling afterwards. But it kind of reignited my interest in all those things, too, because there's so many different elements to it, not only from a perspective of, like, following a cult as a cult follower, Mm -hmm. um, but also on the other end of, like, people that – you know, law enforcement and everything like that, the judgment calls they have to make when you're dealing with cults and you're dealing with people that are harming children and harming, you know, women and things like that, but they're all there willingly. Like how, how do you go about that? And how do they step in? How do they say, Hey, I'm here to help you when they're like, I don't need help or whatever, you know, what have you. So, and they're, they haven't always gotten it right. Obviously we saw that with the Waco thing. You can't convince me otherwise. Right. I'm sounding very conspiracy theorist today, <laughs> and that's not my personality at all. That's more you. Um, so maybe you're rubbing off on me because normally I'm like, oh, God, conspiracy theories. Yep. Um, but I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah. 
<laughs> See what I did there? And so, segue. So, drinking the Kool-Aid. For those of you that don't know, that uh, this particular case is where that stemmed from. That very popular phrase of you're drinking the Kool-Aid or stop don't drinking drink the, the Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid. It, it stemmed from this specific case. And I think that's one of the things that got me started into, you know, even finding out what Jonestown was about. So I will start with, I thought I knew a lot about Jonestown. Like I thought I could go toe to toe with someone talking about Jonestown all day long. And then you found out you're an amateur. I learned a lot of very interesting things while I was doing research that Mm -hmm. were just blowing my mind. So I... I'm excited then because I feel like... Um, Jonestown's almost boring to me because I feel like I've heard it all. And that's what I thought too. Yeah. And I was like, oh, and at first I was like, oh my goodness, this might be just a mini, but there's a lot. So hopefully I'll give you some more information about it and I will be shedding some, some new lights. So for, I'm going to start at the beginning because for those that aren't in the U.S., this wasn't a global thing. Mm-hmm. This was something that was particular to the U.S. It affected a lot of U.S. citizens. So I will start at the beginning uh, and go from there, giving you a little background. They they call this the biggest mass suicide in the U.S. in most recent history. I was, was Jonestown in the U.S. though? No. Okay. But it started in the U.S. Okay, I was gonna say so, that they d- weren't here though. No, okay. not when the not when the big event when the climax happened. Yeah. But anywhere that you you Google it, you search for it, it'll be called the headline is it's the the biggest mass suicide. I have my thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. We'll go into that. Okay. Because again, <laughs> you can't be suicided and call it a suicide. <laughs> You can't be forced upon the suicide and be suicidal. Right, right. So, so Jonestown, it's commonly referred to as Jonestown, the Jonestown murder. And it, this all starts with the man, the leader who was born James Warren Jones. He, from here on out, I'll probably just call him Jim Jones. He was known as Jim Jones. And he was an only child. His dad was a war vet. He did not have a steady job once he was back home. He Mm -hmm. lived in Indiana. And his mom, because his dad was not working or had steady work, had to become the breadwinner of the house. I will say this, and I found this in, in a couple different articles, that his mom was not so keen on having children. Okay. That's why he was the only child. Okay. And she Potentially almost, an accident? Yes. That's what it seems like. Okay. And then also almost resented having a child. So she didn't give him that motherly love that you usually would give a child or he would have received. So mm-hmm. he was uh, very much left to fend for himself and very lonely as a child. He did have the example from his mom because she worked at a big factory, she be she was also a union leader at her factory. Oh, so okay. she was the one that, you know, presented to the union, came back, presented stuff back from the union to her people. So she was that face to face person um, for them. So she he had that example of 
leadership, and that'll play a role later on in his life, obviously. Well, and people have very strong feelings about unions in general, so... That, too. It would be interesting to know if, like, seeing that role as a leadership, but also the center of controversy, Mm. influenced him in any way. I I think it did. Okay. So, I mean, there is reports that... Her having that role was integral to his mm-hmm. upbringing because that's how he saw his mother. He didn't see his mother as a a source of love or a source of, of nurturing. Mm-hmm. He saw her with this leader role, and that's, I'm sure, what he tried to be. Okay. So eventually the house workings weren't working out, and they were kicked out of their home. They mm-hmm. had to move in with family in the small town of Lynn, Indiana. He was rather small. He read a lot. He walked around the town by himself. And a lot of the old ladies, again, this is a very small town. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the older ladies in the community saw this kid walking around, just talking to himself, reading, sitting down in the parks and reading, and inviting him to his house often for slices of cake. Like, Aww. hey, kid, you want to have a piece of cake? Cute. Of course he went in. And he started hanging out with these older ladies more and more. <laughs> and the more he did... They probably saw that he was missing that connection with a with a female in his life, and they invited him to their church services. Oh, so well intentioned. Exactly. The first church that he got invited to was a Pentecostal church. Okay. I know very little about certain denominations, but I had to look this up for the purpose of this. And what I found is that the Pentecostal church puts a lot of theatrics mm-hmm. into their services. Yep. It's the kind of service that you're likely not going to be able to nod off on because there's always loud music yep. or there is preaching that is boisterous. Yeah. So you're likely not going to be able to sleep at this church service. He liked that. Yeah. He loved it. Yeah. They have a very um, commanding style yes. of preaching. And he loved it. He saw that the person that was at the front of these churches, the preacher, pastor, what have you, was commanding. Yeah. The, he had a commanding presence and he liked the power he saw that the person was getting from his community, from his congregation. Mm-hmm. So I say this, of course, with a grain of salt. He's a smart person. Mm-hmm. He's a smart kid. And he not only went to this Pentecostal church, he decided to go to every denomination that was available in Lynn, Indiana. So he decided to, like, taste test them all? Exactly. Okay. So he went to every single one and, you know, tried to take in, absorb what was making them successful. Either, I don't know if it was for religious reasons that he was doing this he was a kid yeah it was more for that power yeah he was researching he was researching how to get power he not only went to all the denominations and this is back in i believe the the 40s 50s there was a thing called revival tents yes i am aware of that i didn't know what the hell they were yep i had to look those up Oh. So they're pop-up tents, like yeah. you would a circus, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're called like they're they're known by different names. But it's revival tent or Holy Ghost tents or Holy Ghost revival tents. Yeah, and they're traveling churches, and 
fix me if I'm wrong. Yeah. They're traveling churches Mm -hmm. and they showcase public healings. Yes. So the idea is that it's kind of like, for the lack of a better term, it's like an intense church service. So rather than your church service that goes on for an hour, you're talking about 24 to 72 hours of you in church. And there may be breaks in there, like you go home in the evening, but then you come back and it's an all-day event for a couple days. And it's not necessarily a traveling church as much as it is a traveling pastor Ah. who comes to the town and the churchgoers go to him because it's somebody of great influence or like great um, respect in the community. Sure. So they're visiting pastors and they come in. And they do like really intense church services, usually in the summertime when it's hot. So there's like that added um, like stimulation of it, like being hot and like it's very intense. Um, But the idea is that it's kind of like a high pressure, intense session. I don't even know what to call it. Like it's like a retreat, but not a retreat. And the idea is that they're saving people. Like you're getting people to convert or you're getting people to like turn their life over to the Lord type thing. And you have so many people that do this and it's kind of like this way of bringing the church together, but also bringing in people to like turn their life around. Yeah. Yeah. So he went to every single one that came into town. He loved it. This sounds horrible. Right. It's like days on end in the hot in a tent, just so somebody, and the style that they typically use was that same thing. It was like very commanding, very loud, sometimes a lot of yelling. Like it's just like somebody in your face telling you to repent. Like the way, the way I imagine (gasps) it is like speaking in tongues, telling people to lift off wheelchairs, you know, that type of show. Didn't get very witchcrafty or anything like that. It was more like turn your life over to the Lord and be baptized. And at the end of it, they always did a baptism. So everybody that had like turned their life over to the Lord, they would then be baptized as a group. Sure. Um, but I know that like some of them could get kind of weird. Right. Okay. Well, I can only imagine um, a small town. Yeah. So by the age of nine, so he was young going to these things. Yeah. He was young. By himself the, too. By himself. So that's interesting too, because then he's the one that's left to try and make sense of it all. Yep. yep. And so by the age of nine, he had convinced others and I think to a certain extent had convinced himself that he had supernatural powers himself to the point <laughs> where he gathered people around town to watch him jump off a roof because he told them that he would be able to fly by the grace of God. Okay. So any guesses to what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, he didn't fly. He did not fly. And he he broke a leg. <laughs> I'll bet. So he broke his leg, age nine, and I don't in the community think all things he's a joke. Yeah, probably. I that's the only report that I saw of him um, at that age doing that. But he, as a kid, he was just a weird kid. Obviously, by age nine, he's doing weird shit like this. But well, and being a a church hopper. I can't imagine as a super popular persona Probably for a nine-year-old not. boy. Absolutely not. No. Like, I can't imagine that that's like, like... you usually have to drag kids into churches. Yeah. So for You're one, one time that, a week. Mm-hmm. So w- there's reports that w- when he was growing up and he was at school and kids were playing during recess, this was, mind you, during World War II, a lot of kids were play war 
Mm -hmm. A lot of kids would play soldiers. Yeah. And they would just, you know, pay two sides, but nonetheless still soldiers. Guess who he picked to play? Fucking Hitler. Oh, God. He Red chose, flag number one. He chose to play Hitler every Yikes. time they were playing in the play, in the playground. And as he got older, he liked that being in charge, being in power thing. Although I will say, devil's advocate, I won't look, t- I won't frown on it too hard because the Hitler thing. Because during that time period, they didn't really know what all was going on. All you, your mm. only source of news was newspaper and radio, and a lot of the information was coming over late. Sure. The concentration camps, when they first started talking about that, that that was happening, people didn't believe it. True. Because they thought there's no way that some, there's no way that somebody would be that evil. Right. There's no way this could happen. It wasn't until like the camps were actually liberated and all these photos came out that people actually realized what was going on. So if so he maybe was, for him it was just like a, a wartime I mean, leader. He, he knew that he was like a dictator and tyrant sure. and everything like that, but he didn't I don't think people realized that he was mass executing people. I will say this. But he did know later. When it comes to great speakers, great public speakers, Hitler's one of the no top. one commanded a fucking room like him. That's I mean that's how he came into power that's how is because he, did what he, he did. was an amazing public speaker. Yes. So I think I would be more inclined to think it was that like how did he like take the power that he took rather than him being a mass executioner. Right. <laughs> that drew his attention. Yes. That additional fact was probably just an added bonus for him later on down the road. Correct. By the age of 14 he liked having power, mm-hmm. and he liked being the little organizer. And this is where I think his mom being that example in his life came to play a little bit more. He established a baseball league in his community at 14. Okay. So. <laughs> You've been a great entrepreneur. Pretty fucking cool, right? 14-year-old, yeah. I'd be proud of shit. But <laughs> I don't know if it was mid-season or what, but what I found was that <laughs> some of the kids that were in the league he gathered them up and he told them he could make a dog fly out of a two-story window. Oh. And he, he dropped was, a doggy uh, out of a two-story window. He didn't learn his lesson when he couldn't fly? Nope. So they saw him do this and yeah. they're like, nope, we're noping out of here. Yeah. And they disbanded the, the baseball league. So well, that was we, short-lived. Well, yeah, because they're like, uh, I signed up for the Sandlot, not for some right. like, doggy <laughs> snuff film. And at the same time, the there's a lot of reports. They come and go. They're not consistent on, you know, the documentaries and some of the the articles that I read. But there, what is consistent is that he had funerals for animals. What is not consistent is whether he killed those animals himself or if they were like roadkill or something. But what is consistent is that he held full-on funerals for animals. So he was like the animal undertaker? Kind of. Yikes. Yeah. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. Okay. That's a lot of his very young life. Yeah. But when it came to high school, he was, again, a very quiet person. And he did something which seemed odd to a lot of people, which is he wore his Sunday best every day. Well, yeah, because he liked church. He liked it. He loved it. You know, and that's part of like that uniform of Mm -hmm. being in power yeah so he graduated with honors dressed to impress exactly he did yeah he graduated with honors he 
soon after high school joined a Pente- uh, joined a Pentecostal church, and right after um, it, around 1952, so he's about 19 at this point. They appointed him as the youth pastor for that church, so he was yeah. steadily, slowly but surely gaining leadership roles in the community. Okay, so he was a youth pastor. And one of the first things that he did, and I will preface with this, Lynn, Indiana, small town, Midwest, still segregated at this point. Yeah. Of course. And you really didn't see it progressing any other way at that point. Right? Mm -hmm. He wanted to change that. He wanted to be super progressive. And when he became the youth pastor, he made it a point to make a desegregated kids choir. So interesting for anyone that came in or for any time that the kids performed during church services or for when he invited new people into the church and say, Hey, I'm the youth pastor. Come check out these kids that are come to our service. One of the first things, one of the first impressions that they had is this is an inviting church. This is an inclusive church. Look mm-hmm. at what they're doing. They're super progressive. So I would be interested to know whether or not that was a strategy. It seems very strategic to me because radical ideas tend to. Radicalize. (laughs) Yeah. They will. Radical ideas create a radical audience and it tends to like, it creates conversation. Mm -hmm. So at that point he was starting to build his notoriety, notoriety in the community. Mm -hmm. And because he was a, good speaker, yeah. good public speaker, they started inviting him to conventions, to other churches, to speak on behalf of this um, social inclusivity and because it was unheard of to have someone powerful in the community be all for it other than like a politician or two. Right. Like normal day citizens weren't standing up for desegregation as much as you th- think they would at that point. Right, because it didn't serve them to speak on things like that. So, like I said, he was very outspoken about social injustices, and he used a lot of biblical passages to back up what he was teaching. You know, God loves everyone. Mm -hmm. He started using this. So, at the beginning, he was still being religious, like, it was still about God. It was still about unity. It was still about love. It was about love, you know, love thy neighbor, love mm-hmm. everyone. And that's how he kind of crept his way in and and made a name for himself. By the time he got more, you know, he, he got in his head, he formed his own church. And he named it the People's Temple. He welcomed everyone. Wait a minute. He named it the People's Tent- Temple, mm-hmm. and his one of his influences was Hitler. Well, not I don't know if influences, because he just played Hitler him. was the one that called the Beatle the People's Car. Oh shit! That's where Volkswagen comes from. Is the People's Car? Huh. So to then turn around and name it, the <laughs> sorry, People's you just Temple, blew my mind. I'm like, is that a connection? I didn't even think of that. Yeah. I, that's, I to me, that's not a know coincidence. What to say. I don't think that's a coincidence. It might not be. I don't think it is. Super interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you 
<laughs> you just put a penny on my I track. Like, Wait I a have minute. no that idea. That sounds familiar. <laughs> um, okay, so he started the People's Temple, and he did welcome everyone. Even during this segregated time, he had people of all races, colors, socioeconomic uh, statures come in and, and join the church. He work, welcomed everyone. Because of this, because he was, quote-unquote, progressive, there was hate coming in from oh, yeah. other people in the community. Uh, at one time, there was a swastika painted on the temple, and there were dead cats thrown at the steps of the church. That's all right. He probably had a funeral for them. But <laughs> I didn't think <laughs> But he used this, of course, as fuel of, like, it's working. Mm-hmm. Look at what we're doing. They don't like what we're doing, but we know we're right. That's mm-hmm. how he preached to his congregation. Like, let's keep doing what we're doing, even though some may not like it. This is proof that they not like it, but let's keep going. Mm-hmm. So to show that he practiced what he preached about, you know, being inclusive and loving everyone, he was married. His wife's name is Marceline. In total, they had nine children. Oh, wow. I know for sure of four that were adopted. Okay. Three of Korean descent. Oh, interesting. And one African-American kid who he made his namesake. Okay. And I heard this over and over in in the interviews. Jim Jones uh, Jr. was has been interviewed several times over oh, yeah. about all of this. And I'll tell you how he survived, but he said that, yeah, you know, at some point in, and it's still true. It's a fact. The first African-American kid adopted by a white family in Indiana. So when he was little, that was kind of his claim to fame yeah. because he thought that was super cool. Yeah. He was adopted from an orphanage and the story goes that Marceline walked in and they were initially going to adopt a white kid, mm-hmm. and well, who is now Jim Jr., uh, was crying and crying, and she went over, picked him up, stopped crying. So that's how she knew she wanted to adopt him. That's actually really sweet. Super sweet story. But Jim Jones Sr. always referred to him as his adopted black son. Oh, that's not that's and not what you want to hear. That's like a little. That's a dagger every time. Call him your son. Also, we weren't wondering. Like right. you have two white parents. No shit. We didn't think that you produced a black child. You didn't need to clarify <sighs> that. But so he called his family a rainbow family. Like they were the epitome of a rainbow family. Mm. They they were inclusive. They you know they for everyone on the outside they loved their family. They they had a loving family. And I don't know otherwise. They did love their family. There's no signs of abuse. But it looked like they anything. essentially were practicing what they preached. Exactly okay. because that's what he wanted to do. So he yep. did. Um, and this is how he used his family as. I would say tokens or examples of like, look at what I can do. Look what I did. You should do the same. Go adopt kids from war-torn places, war-torn refugees. Go do that. Be it was better the poster family. The exactly. Yeah. He kept doing this thing. He had his church going. He was kind of the nonstop guy, always thinking, always writing, always. He did this weird thing where he recorded himself all the time, whether it was with videotapes 
or audio. But at some point, there was always one of the two going. There was always documentation of what he was doing. It seems odd to me, but then narcissism is exactly. an interesting thing. Exactly. So in 1961, he collapsed due to exhaustion. And he was, I say erroneously, but at that time, erroneously taken to a black hospital. Mm-hmm. Instead of a white hospital. Again, hospitals were still segregated at this point. Yeah. When he woke up, they realized, shit, we have you at the right or wrong hospital. We're going to transport you to the thing. I don't know how they mistakenly they, taken him to the... up? Right. So, <laughs> I don't know if he just had a tan or like what. But they were like, okay, we're going to take you to the right hospital. He's like, no, I'm fine here because... We, you know, I, mm-hmm. I'm going to receive the care that I need. And he went above and beyond that. And he started helping the nurses with changing beds, changing bedpans for the entire rest of the people that were at the hospital. Word got out that he was doing this, that not only a white person was taken to the wrong hospital, but he was helping do like the chores and the duties that the nurses do at the hospital. And this almost, this drove a wedge in the town again. Some to hate him. Mm-hmm. But some were like, holy crap, you're a super cool guy. You do love everyone. You're showing it. You're practicing what you're preaching. So that only built up more people coming into his congregation. Right. That built what, you know, what he was saying. And so two years later, in 1963, Jim said that he had a dream, a revelation that the entire Midwest was going to be demolished as a result of nuclear war. And he also shared thoughts on how he hated the U.S. government. The way that he posed it was like, I hate the U.S. government because of segregation, because they're not doing anything about it, because things aren't changing, Mm -hmm. you know, all these things. But it started that seed of, we don't like the government. I don't like the government, so you shouldn't like the government. A couple years later... In 1967, so four years after his revelation, the Esquire magazine put out an article that named the the top nine places to live in if there was ever a nuclear apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) One of those places was in Redwood Valley, California. What a strange article to put out. Super strange. And I think that's because of... I mean, you know, they were doing the, nuclear the drills and the stuff. Time, yeah. Right. So, unfortunately, it just fell on his lap that, yeah. you know, the, well, it was already that the Midwest wasn't embracing what he was doing, the changes that he was making. Yeah. And in 1968, so a year later after that article, he, his family, and 150 of his closest followers, most loyal followers, moved to Ukiah, California, so in Redwood Valley. Okay. To put this into context, though, it all happened in what is now known, well, and it was known then as well, the Summer of Love. Super mm. hippy-dippy, everyone was about love. California was embracing that. Dropping a lot of acid. See, exactly. <laughs> so, but California was kind of like the hub of, you know, the flower child, the mm-hmm. the people, the the lovers. You know, not the haters, not lovers. I don't know what to call what else to call it. But so 
a lot of people were yearning or had in their mind this utopian lifestyle of why doesn't everyone just love everyone and why can't we just be self-sustainable and live together and all these things. So the idea of inclusivity and not being subject to big government was appealing to not only him at this point, but we know at the very least 150 followers. So they moved out there. They bought some land. They began this movement where they were the example of everything that is good in the world. And within the commune that they built, and I'm calling it a commune or community for lack of a better word, but they are compound. They had a rehabilitation center. Okay. They had a senior center. Okay. They housed the homeless. They had their very own clinic and their own daycare. Oh, wow. So they had their own town. Yeah. Basically. They had everything they needed in they one spot. They had everything they needed. They were growing their own food. They were growing their own vegetables. But if they needed, they could go into town and get more supplies. But <laughs> they were growing this reputation of basically bring me your poor, bring me your needy, bring me... You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. they would rehab these people. And that was the allure of people, especially young people, based on the people that eventually joined. The demographic was young people mm-hmm. or elderly people. Okay, so not a lot of middle age. Not a lot of middle-aged people. But it was a lot of those um, the elderly people, they fell for that sense of I'm going to get taken care of. And a lot of the reports and people say that, you know, if they needed to go to the dentist, it was taken care of. It was, if they needed legal advice, legal help, it was taken care of. So every aspect of their lives, they could count on this community Mm. to help them. It's like a senior living center with everything that you need. Everything. But obviously presented as a more loving place than a senior center. You were still, you had your freedom. So, but this is also while they're in California where he started getting involved in local politics. He befriended local politicians. And this is the crucial part. When they needed people to show up to their rallies, Mm -hmm. he came, he became that go-to person Because if the politician was backing anything that was for social justice, he would tell their congregation, let's go. And at this point, it was like three, four hundred people. And for a politician. He was like recruiting. Absolutely. He was pimping out his congregation. Yeah. And for a politician to go from, hey, I'm going to have this rally to, boom, I have 400 400 attendees. Mm Mm-hmm. By one phone call, it was a dream to them. Yeah. So this happened a lot. And a lot of the reports say that, you know, when the people from the People's Temple would show up, they were courteous, they were nice, they weren't there to um, incite anything. It wasn't like the Westboro Baptist Church. No, no. (laughs) Which is a whole other topic. That's a whole other topic. But they were... Um, there with their signs and they were there to support and, you know, they didn't cause any trouble, but they were there as a good face for that politician. Got it. Because people were, he, he, he kept them in the spotlight. Yeah. So his popularity kept growing. His popularity kept growing. And he saw that the amount of people multiplied a lot more 
especially after public healings. Hmm. Because he started doing these now. Really? Did he make any dogs fly? No. <laughs> he did not. He never lost those supernatural powers he never had. So <laughs> Funny how that works. And one of the cases that's captured by video, and it's probably too long for Instagram or regular Facebook, we'll post it on a group, is that he seemingly out of nowhere in in the middle of service points out to a woman that's on a wheelchair and he's he commands her to walk to walk and she starts walking the room blows up of course cuz they just witnessed a miracle yeah and she starts limping along, you know, looking like she just got off a wheelchair for the first time and then starts running through the aisles. <laughs> the church just implodes. There's just, you know, everyone's happy. Everyone's cheering. They just witnessed a miracle. There's some people that are, you know, running with her at this point. Come to find out that was a secretary. I was going to say there's... The of course. It's a sham. Yeah. So the more... He saw that the public healings, and I'm using air quotes, were attracting more people, the more often he would do them. Mm -hmm. Because it used to be every once in a while. Yeah. So the more he would do them, the more he would have to fake them. I think they're all faked. But, you know, he would, um, I think there's a video of him cutting a cast off someone's arm and saying, like, move your fingers. And there's all these things that, like, you know... Kid was like, I was supposed to get that cast off like a week ago, but sure. (laughs) With the older people in the community, and I think this is a form of abuse, but it's not reported as such. He convinced them, and they willingly gave over the deeds to their houses. They willingly sold their houses and gave the profits as a tithing to the church. Yeah. And this was all in the promise of, like, Go sell your home. Give mm-hmm. us the money. We'll make sure that you have a place to live. Right. That you are taken care of. We'll grow the community. We'll mm-hmm. build houses on our land for you. We'll have you well taken care of. Right. And up until this point, they were. So, you know, if you are an older person or a person at this point and you are being asked this and you look around you and you see that people are getting taken care of, you're very likely to follow along. Right. So they did. They were giving over deeds to their houses. His need for power didn't stop at that public speaking point or the money point. He, I'm sure like with anything, he almost got a little bored with that. Mm -hmm. And he started exploring how else he could use his power. So that was sexually. Oh, boy. Yeah. There are reports that he raped women and men. Oh, I didn't know that. Neither did I. I really couldn't understand this. A lot of the survivors on the the documentaries were trying to explain it. And I guess it was one of those things, like, maybe you had to be there to understand what the hell they're talking about. But he called everyone else, he called the entire congregation a sinner. And that everyone was a homosexual, except for him. And that them not giving into their desires was them being complacent 
and not giving into like what society was like giving into what society was telling them to do. Yeah. It makes no sense. So they're sinners because they're all homosexuals, but if you deny being a homosexual, then you're being a bad heterosexual. And... Right. Wow, that's confusing. So some of the reports say that if he found someone attractive, at least for the women, he would go up to them and use that power role mm-hmm. to get them to quote unquote comply to co have sex with him. As far as the men, if he found them attractive, not saying like he found them attractive, but if he wanted to sleep with them, yeah, he told them like that was the code. Like you, you need to go report for a colon cleanse and report to my room later tonight. Oh God. Right? Super weird. I did not know this. I did not know that he did that. And then another thing that he did was eventually they, he bought or they bought a shit ton of Greyhound buses to drive the congregation around. Yeah. Traveling congregation. They traveled the cross country and on one of the buses, specifically bus seven, he had part of the Greyhound bus in the back converted to his own quarters. And he had like a bed, a desk, his own like bookshelf, whatever. And... Uh, one of the women, one of the survivors uh, says that, you know, he came up to her and he was like, you need to go into my, into my quarters. And like next time that the people got at the rest stop, he told her to go back there. So it wasn't even something that he was like publicly doing. He right. knew this. He had to have known this was wrong. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. So he would, and, and he proceeded to rape her in the back of the bus. It's such an interesting tactic, too, because usually they go for the many wives thing. You, it's something, but yeah. no, this one, it, it was it was a power thing. It was all about the... Totally yeah. the power thing. It's about dominating people. Mm-hmm. In 1973, they've done the cross-country thing. They've done, you know, everything as... It's successful at this point. Yeah. Obviously, there's there these underground things happening. The CD the, underbelly. Right. The rape, the... I don't know exactly what he's doing with the elderly's money, what have you, but in 1973, eight people said, eh, we're cutting out. Yeah. We're gonna... We're gonna break apart. We don't like what's going on. What they first did is that they wrote him a letter. They got together, they wrote him a letter, they all signed it, he ignored it, so then they made it public to the entire church. They said, this is what we think you're doing, we don't like it, you either change or we're leaving, and we're gonna, you know, call you out in front of everyone. That's what they did, because he didn't do shit about it. So, they made it public to the entire congregation, to the entire church, and I will say there was several branches. So there was like the Redwood Valley, there was a church in San Francisco, and at the same time, the a newspaper, the San Francisco Examiner, got wind of this letter that they had written. So they wrote an entire expose on what's going on at this quote-unquote church, hmm. because they're thinking, is it a cult? Right. What is going on? Are people getting abused? Are, or is, is there embezzlement going on? And also on this, and I didn't hear this anywhere else, but other from the San Francisco Examiner article, that at this point he had claimed to have brought 43 people back from the dead. So they were calling him out on his bullshit of being a false messiah. Yeah. I, di- I didn't hear this anywhere else. Yeah. But... 
that it sounds would, in line with what he's doing. But that would definitely perk some ears up if you're reading an article on it. Oh, for sure. So there's that. They at least did that. And around the same time, not, you know, within a couple months or so, the San Francisco church was burnt down. Hmm. So he used the people that were abandoning them, the church, or calling him out, the defectors, the newspaper article, the San Francisco church being burnt down as we're getting attacked. I'll bet you he was doing it himself. That's what I thought. I think he's doing it himself. Because the timing on this, and I'll go into the timeline here in a little bit, but the timing of it, of having an entire church burned down. um, Because suddenly then you become the victim. Exactly. And the narrative changes. That's exactly what I think happened. Yeah. So, because there is no suspects or groups named in who might have burned that church down. Right. What he goes back to his congregation and says is, you know, we're just being attacked. This is the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need to start figuring other sh- other shit out. He's trying to say that, you know, this is the perfect example of how the media plus the government, we're trying to keep them all from happiness and trying to keep them from living successfully. So in 1974, he announced that he, with the money... From tithings and deeds and shit. Mm-hmm. He had purchased some land, some jungle land, 27,000 acres worth in Guyana. Right. So... This is where things... Yeah. Start speeding yeah. up quickly. So he bought 27,000 acres and he had passed through Guyana, which is in the Northeast South America. <laughs> I almost said Central, but South America. And... It's a socialist country, mm-hmm. and he liked that. And it's one of the few South American countries that speak English. He announced and he sent the first group, about 50 people of his most loyal followers down there to start breaking ground. Yeah. He sent them out there. This is where it gets interesting, and I'll come back to it. They had the help from the U.S. Embassy, getting permits, getting stuff down there, getting materials down there getting boats out, you know, because they had to bring a lot of materials to build houses out of nothing that was there. Mm -hmm. It was literally jungle land. And they carved out this piece of land, cut down the trees. What's really interesting is that the U.S. Embassy also helped them bring in guns. Why does a church need guns? Yeah. I'll touch base on that. So keep that in the back of your mind. Mm Mm-hmm. The more that the community or the community or the church in Guyana started growing, he started sending smaller and smaller groups over there. Obviously, they needed to build that infrastructure while they were there. And like I said, he started, he liked to record everything. He liked to document it, mm-hmm. and which helps us kind of understand what was going on a little bit. Mm-hmm. But what he was doing is that he was having people record how the new place was coming along, how there was new buildings coming up, how there was, you know, water wells and crops being, you know, harvested. And he was playing that almost as advertisements to the people that are still here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. As to like, here's why you should go join us when we move to Guyana. Mm -hmm. Let's all move to Guyana. Let's all hold hands, sing Kumbaya, like literally. And people started falling in love with the idea of 
the U.S. government, you know, things are going crazy right now. They don't, they're not supporting us. They just burnt our church down or someone burnt our church down. We're being attacked. Let's move down to this peaceful place. So people started falling in love with the idea of moving down to Guyana. So they, they started slowly but surely moving down there right after this article came out. Mm-hmm. One interesting thing that he did was that he flew everyone out, but from different airports, different amount of people. Yeah. Not so it didn't seem like A thousands of people. Yeah. Exactly. One of the one of the survivors um was saying in an interview, she's like, My first red flag <laughs> Sweetie, there um, were a lot before that. <laughs> was that as soon as they touched Crown and Guyana they took away all their passports. No. Yeah, no, that's a that's a bad sign. Huge red flag. Yeah. You don't know. You're stuck now. You yes, you are theirs. Like what? So no. So they started um, you know, flying people down there. What's funny is that in one of the propaganda videos mm-hmm. that he was uh that he had recorded, because he had gone down there too, make sure progress was going, da 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 da. He was videotaping, you know, the food that they had harvested, and one of the one of the shots was him in a storage room with bananas hanging up. Mm-hmm. The stickers are still on the bananas. Oh my god! <laughs> because it was dull growing, bananas. Because it was growing too fast. The community was growing too fast. They weren't harvesting enough food, so they were shipping it in. So they were shipping it in. They were buying stuff to make it seem like they were fruitful and that they That's were hilarious. safe, sustainable. And in super creepy shot, he's walking around and he's showing the storage shed with all the food, and he opens up this trunk that has all the kool-aid in it oh my god super creepy they start you know they they they're there for at least two years two three years Mm -hmm. um everything's going well he's saying people are coming and going but congressman lee ryan in california catches wind that Maybe everything's not as happy as it seems. Mm -hmm. So something about Congressman Ryan, he is very boots on the ground. He's going to take a look at it for himself. He's not just going to, you know, take a report and take, you know, take it. So for example, he spent a whole week in Fulton prison because he had heard reports that like conditions were bad there. So he checked himself in. Do you check yourself into a prison? I guess what do you so, do? if you're a congressman. Yeah, what do you do? <laughs> but he stayed there for an entire week. So that's just to give you a little bit of a, of a background of the type of person that he is. So yeah. when he heard, you know, his constituents were... Being well, held against their will. Exactly. Or potentially being held against their will and living under bad conditions. Because at this point, there's reports of people not getting enough food, being malnourished, the kids uh, not having priority over adults, so the kids are being malnourished. What was happening is that people back here in the U.S. were not able to contact their, their friends family. and family. Yeah, and then they had no phones, no televisions, and super weird. And we know this now that he had a loudspeaker. It was a compound, completely a compound, like a military compound that. Right. 
um, he had recordings of himself playing day and night. Yeah, I knew he would do that. And someone explained it perfectly. They're like, for him, it was preaching, but it was a form of torture. Yeah. Because if you can't even go to sleep or get a good night's sleep, that's torture. Right. And then not only that, but they were almost enslaved. Like, they had to work ridiculous amounts of hours Mm -hmm. to basically pay off their living there. Yeah. There's reports that if anyone tried to say they didn't want to be there anymore, they would publicly beat them in front of everyone. To make an example of them. Exactly. Yeah. What he did a lot of times was he used his most loyal followers as a decoy Mm -hmm. to pretend, like, to go into a room with someone and, like, say they wanted to leave to see if the person that was being told that would actually go tell on them Mm. to see if they were loyal. And what was happening is that, you know... People were turning on each other. Exactly. Yeah. Family members and even kids were turning on their parents and parents on their kids. And they... Something interesting about this is that it wasn't, you know, one woman or one man or what have you, like standalone people. People brought their entire fucking families to this. And when you see the list of people who perished... And you see how they're tied with each other. Their family names. There's an entire there's an entire list of like mom, dad, uncle, nieces, nephews, Generations. cousins, and a grandma, aunts. Like holy shit. Yeah. There's entire families. So they're like entire lineage is wiped out. Exactly. Yeah. It's so scary. So when the congressman was like, "All right, fine. Not only am I gonna go down there." But to the family members that are here that have reached out to me that have concern for their family members that are out in Guyana, I'm going to bring them with me. He didn't want to surprise him. He didn't want to want to surprise Jim Jones by just showing up to Guyana. He would have gotten wind of it because from the time that you landed in Georgetown, it was still like a five-hour drive. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the courteous thing to do, right? Yeah. So he, at first, Jim, he flip-flopped on, sure, come on in to, you know what, we'd rather not. And we don't want U.S. government in here. Like, that's mm-hmm. why we broke we left, away. Yeah. And he eventually landed on, go ahead, come on in. But to his people, he said, he's going to come in, we're going to kill him. We're going to shoot him on sight. Yeah, I, I now remembering something that I saw. with. And then, so he flip-flopped on that as well and said, you know what? Never mind. We're going to show him how good of a community we have. So he put this entire thing together. He made everyone put together signs, welcoming the congressmen and their family members. Actually, I'm sorry. I'll back up a little bit. Before the congressmen arrived, five days before, his two sons in Jonestown had started a basketball team. They Kind of like the baseball team he started? Kind of. Huh. They went to a tournament in Georgetown five days before the congressman arrived. So they were going to be there for a tournament. And that's why they weren't there when all of this went down. Stephen. Oh, okay. okay. Stephen Jones and Jim Jones were both not there when all of this happened, when the congressman arrived. Yeah. So 
the congressman arrived. He was going to be there for a couple of days. He got there, and there's footage of this. Again, we'll mm-hmm. post it. Before even the congressman got there, he had all these dress rehearsals of... Well, he had all these dress rehearsals with people like, let's practice what you're going to tell the congressman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're happy. We're good. No, I don't want to go back. No, I don't miss anyone. I hate Get your US story government. straight. And if they didn't, there goes another lesson taught. You know, they beat him in publicly in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. Because he was feeling attacked and because he was, you know, saying that to everyone that like, hey, we are the ones that are being attacked. We're the victims. He started having what they called white night drills. And that sounds odd. Really odd. He had everyone come into the pavilion, which was like the common area. And at this point, there was about 900 people in this commune. He had everyone come in and he would preach to them why it would be necessary to do a mass suicide. Because they would be free, they would, you know, they would go just to a never, uh, another plane together, and they wouldn't um, be subject to government rule, da, da 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 He also promised to them that if, for some reason, the mass suicide didn't work, or they never went through with it, that they could do a mass exodus to Soviet Russia. <laughs> okay. Yep. <laughs> I don't know that Soviet Russia wants you, sir, but okay. I don't know what ties he had with them, but I'll bring that back into here in just a minute. But one of the times that he had these drills, he had barrels of Kool-Aid put together, mixed together. Mm -hmm. He had everyone drink it and then said, you all just drink poison. So he told them. No, hold on. That was a drill. Oh, 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 okay. And then... People will start, you know, some people were crying. Some people were just like, holy shit, what happened? Some people were hugging their babies. And then he started laughing. He said, that was a drill. I just wanted to test your loyalty. So he's like desensitizing them to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a drink. Which is fucked up. Like, what kind of fucking mind games? Like, if you're at that point, you know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. If you're... Jesus Christ, I can't imagine. I would have left right then and there. Yeah. I wouldn't have stayed a day longer. Fuck you. No. No, for somebody to... That's such emotional abuse. God. I can't imagine. Yeah. So, back to... Congressman. Congressman, yep. He comes comes in. He's met at the airstrip by an official from Guyana, and he's told... You're, we're told you can't step foot past this airstrip. You need to get back on your plane. You need to leave. Because I think Jim had changed his mind again. But mm-hmm. the congressman was like, no, I I want to go see my people, especially now. Because you're telling me I can't. And right. I traveled all this way. So he makes his way in. Everyone seems hunky-dory. Everyone gives him the, you know, we're happy. We're, we're great. They have this whole dance put together. For him, everyone's dancing, everyone's live singing, everyone's eating, you know, they're having a grand old time. Mm-hmm. So he stands in front of the entire congregation, Congressman Ryan, and again, this is on recording, and he says, you know, I came down here, there was concerns from some people that, you know, maybe other stuff was going on here, but I see that you guys are all happy, you know, some of you say that this is the best thing that's happened to you in your life. Crowd goes wild. 
And then they go to sleep. They wake up the next day. It was going to just be another tour type of day, you know, but he didn't see anything wrong. No one was clinging onto yeah. his ankles and saying, take me with you at this point. So they're still there the next day. They have breakfast. And one of the, the people there, a man, writes up a note that says, I don't remember her name, but, you know, this lady and I, please help us get out of Jonestown. He puts, uh, and he doesn't slip it to the congressman, but one of the congressman's, like, cameramen, he puts it in between his arm, like his arm fold. Mm -hmm. It falls out. The guy goes to pick it up, and he says, excuse me, I think you dropped something, you know, trying to give it back to him. Mm -hmm. Like, here, second try. A little fucking nine-year-old calls him out and starts yelling, he's passing him a note, he's passing him a note. I would have knocked that fucking nine-year-old out. (laughs) That nine-year-old's been so brainwashed, though. I know. So then the congressman, you know, the the, the cameraman gives the, the note to the congressman, and he's like, holy shit, look, someone just gave us. And mind you, the guy who had written the note, he's one of the people that had his whole family there. Yeah. Like wife, aunt, sisters, grandma, including his child. But at this point... Because the rest of his family was not willing to leave. Yeah. And I don't think that he even shared that thought with his family at this point. He only, he was asking for himself. Yeah. So the congressman sits down. It's all on camera. It's incredible with Jim Jones. And he's like, here's this note. Why, you know, if everything's so happy, why is someone like secretly passing a note asking to leave? Yeah. He's like, well, this is all lies, you know, da, 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 da. Why is this person wanting to leave without their child? Like, if it's so bad, why are they leaving their child behind? Like, he's got the gift of gab. Yeah. That's when the news crew, and I do say news crew because there was, you know, cameramen. He brought media and, with him. Exactly. Yeah. Went around and was asking people... Are you happy here? Yeah. What is going on? And it's on on video. People are saying, no, I want to leave. And, you know, the lady's, like, being very um, PC about it. And she's like, are you so-and-so asking to leave this place on today, November 18th, 1978? And they're like, yes. So, and I'm sure this is for documentation purposes, well, right? Well, yeah, yeah. This was mid-morning. The This is super weird, and I think this is odd because nature sometimes is super weird. But when they woke up, it was like a nice, beautiful, bright, sunny day in the jungle. And by 1130, when all of this was, like, you know, happening, people started talking, like, uh-huh. hey, so-and-so is doing this. Like, they're leaving, da-da-da-da. Word gets out that there's an escape. Exactly. There's a torrential downpour. Mm-hmm. It just happens sometimes right. like that. Especially in a jungle. <laughs> that too. At the end of all the hoopla, you know, people are still arguing. Jim Jones is telling people like, you know, you're betraying me, da, da, da. Why yeah. are you trying to leave? One of his, you know, right hand people gets a knife yeah. and lunges at the congressman and says, something, something, you motherfucker aren't going anywhere. And... The people that are with the congressman take him down. He gets nipped, I think, somewhere on the right chest Mm -hmm. area. Not anything critical, nothing crucial. He's fine. He's walking. He's got a little blood on his shirt. But he's like, yeah, fuck this. Let's get the fuck out. At the end of this, there's about 30 people 
that are like, let's go. Yeah. Right? Because he had already had like a group of 12 with him. There wasn't enough room on the one plane for all of them. Right. So that's where the delay in planes happen, where they had to call in for a second plane to come in and land at the snap of a finger. Mm-hmm. They had to, you know, got get another plane There's from There's part Guyana. of me that goes, how did you not know that this was going to be a necessity? Yeah. If you're going to check out, like... P- claims that people are like st- stuck there and trying to leave bring something with you to get them yeah yeah bring so, the extra suitcase <laughs> shit and there's the videos on this are so weird because people are trying to leave they're gathering what they can you know at, you know in their little suitcases and there's some people that are so brainwashed that they're yelling like don't go don't take the babies da 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 they take the five mile trip out to the airplanes and they have to wait for the second airplane Mm -hmm. now they load the first one with all people who are not part of the crew not the congressman the congressman stays back with this crew and some of the people that are exiting to wait for that second plane Mm -hmm. so they're on the airstrip the plane lands, the second plane, they're loading up. Before everyone's loading up, that was super weird. They did pat everyone down mm-hmm. to make sure they were actually people that were trying to leave and didn't have anything funny on them. Uh. One got by. Mm. So while they're on the on the airstrip, this dump truck comes up. Yeah. At first they they come out there's three guys without saying a word they just go up to the people that are loading their luggage underneath the plane and stuff and getting up on the plane and they're just looking around almost like they're looking for someone mm-hmm. he, they go back to the truck and as soon as they get back to the truck they cut off they they drive the truck around again and they cut off the the plane so they wouldn't be able to take off and the cameraman is still recording, so this is all captured on video. Mm-hmm. There's men that were hidden in the dump part of the truck that suddenly rise up with automatic weapons and just start firing like fucking crazy. Yeah. At any and everything. Inside the plane, because some people were already sitting, one of the guys who was like nervous and one of the survivors um, was sitting next to this guy. This guy inside the plane started shooting at people inside the plane already Mm. so he said that he played dead that's the people that did survive the actual the plane situation the plane situation the shooting at the airstrip had to play dead one of the guys said that he played dead put his hand over his head and was just you know hearing the, the shots hearing the shots and after the rapid fire stopped some of the gunmen came up to the bodies and were shooting them point blank in the head. Oh, that would be so scary. Feet away from what we know now are the survivors. Yeah. And one of the survivors, he said he had his hand over his, you know, his head and eyes on like forehead and eyes. I'm sorry, because you know, he's trying to pretend he's dead and they shoot him. There's so much blood that they didn't realize they actually shot his arm. Mm. So they didn't actually, they 
thank God it didn't go through his arm into his head. You imagine having somebody shoot you in the arm and having to like just and not he react. He didn't. He couldn't flinch. Like it was survival mode. He couldn't even flinch. He couldn't yell. He couldn't do anything. Oh he had God. to play dead while he was getting shot. He was already shot in his body. Yeah. But getting shot point blanked. In the arm and just having to lay Christ. still. Christ. Two people, I believe, ran into the jungle. Because mm-hmm. mind you, this is just a landing strip in the right. middle of the jungle. The people, the gunmen kind of went after them, but they're just like, fuck it. They didn't. Or they thought they just shot into the jungle and got them. So they just kind of left yeah. them. When they realized that the truck had left, they came back. They they looked for any survivors. Congressman was killed, yeah. obviously, on the spot. One of the reporters that was with him, or I believe it was like his secretary or something, she said that, or she recounts that, they had a funny feeling, obviously, from the beginning, yeah. before they even got there, to the point where he had even drafted a will, and she had a copy of it at her desk in, in California. So all of this is happening, or happened, back at the compound, Jim Jones starts gathering everyone in the pavilion, and it's really scary, because he uses the loudspeaker to get mm-hmm. everyone together, and he plays this alarm, almost like a raid alarm, to get everyone get everyone's attention and telling them to meet in the pavilion. He tells them the congressman is dead. This is it. This is how we die because it's either we kill ourselves or we're going to be subject to torture from the U S government because they're going to come. They're going to take your children. They're going to torture your children. They're going to torture you. He is fucking with them so hard. And so it's sad to think what kind of situation you must be in to believe that. And it was all happening so fast that you don't even have time to take a second and Mm -hmm. realize what the fuck is going on. Yeah. So what happens is that he has his most loyal followers mix up. And this is a common misconception. It wasn't actually Kool-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid, the cheap fucking knockoff of Kool-Aid. Because at first they were just mixing cyanide in the water because they wanted to, you know, make it last for all these people, about 900 people. It was so bitter, they didn't think that people were going to like it. First of all, who drinks cyanide and says it's bitter? No shit, Sherlock. But, so they added Flavor-Aid to it. Yeah. This was not a calm scene. No, no, that's not, I've, I've heard that too, that it was chaotic. So chaotic. what was happening, um, he was at the front of the, of, of the podium or the fuck he's out of his throne or whatever he wants to call it. <laughs> and first he calls for the children to do it. Mm. This is where I do not want to call it a suicide. No. Because the children, as brainwashed as they may be. The babies. Yeah, they don't have a choice in that. Newborns. Yeah. They had needleless syringes that they were putting it straight into their mouth, either by the moms Mm -hmm. or the parents, or the moms were holding the babies and they were in line to get it administered. I just can't, I can't wrap my head around that. No. And in the recording, you can hear him say, I mean, the babies are crying left and right. I mean, you try to give a child medicine when they're sick and they're going to cry. But this is something that they're making them ingest and they're crying. And he's like, you know, they're not crying because it's painful. They're just crying because it doesn't taste good. Well, seriously, because you're killing them. Yeah. But 
that's where I don't think suicide, the term suicide applies to the kids. A third of the population there was kids. Over 300 of the 900 Mm -hmm. that were there were fucking kids that were murdered. Right. Well, and there were several adults that didn't. Yes. So some adults were like, hold the fuck on. Yeah. What are you asking us to do? You got the wrong one today. Exactly. They were even, they were being defiant. They didn't want to do it, you know? So his loyal followers um, or his most brainwashed people were taking guns to these people. Yeah. And they were shooting them. Right. And another thing is that a lot of people, I don't know exactly how many, and I'll get to the reason why in here in just a second, but they were injected with it mm-hmm. between their shoulder blades, a yeah. place that you couldn't inject yourself. Right. So that, again, that is not fucking suicide. Right. So, like... Just to kind of like paint a scene here is you have everything that's just happened down on the landing strip. And now you've got him sitting there barking at you over a loudspeaker. People crying, people freaking out, probably people running. You have someone shooting. You have all these people that are shooting people. Mm -hmm. And there's people that are just dying all around you. Frothing at the mouth because that's what cyanide makes you do. Yeah. They're convulsing. They're having seizures. Yeah, falling over. Gunshots going off in the background. People running. Like yep. that's chaos. That is absolutely chaos. It wasn't like everybody just sat down, drank out of a cup, and all nope. laid down and went to sleep together. Right. He's a fucking coward. Yeah. Hopefully, goes without saying. He didn't drink it himself. No, of course not. He had someone shoot him. That's what they always do in the head. Yeah. Oh, before he did that, though, he did. Because his two sons had um, gone to that basketball tournament. He had sent them off with a two-way radio. Yeah. And he told them the safe word to, like, shit's happening, shit's going down, you need to kill yourselves, which was, like, down goes Frasier or something. hmm That was the code word, and the kids were like... Down goes Frasier. Yeah. And, like, the kids were like, no. Yeah. Like, hold the phone. Like, there's, so did, there's a group of them in, in Georgetown, and they all survived because they're like, what? Yeah, I'm not just going to kill myself, sir. Out of fucking nowhere. What um, happened to his wife? So, his wife. It's reported that as soon as the last child was administered the cyanide, she couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. So she drank it herself. Well, yeah. If you have to live with what you've done now. She was also pregnant. Oh, my God. So it was him, uh, I believe some of his nephews and nieces, um, his wife, his unborn child. And he had his other adopted kids, Mm -hmm. like only two of his kids were in Georgetown. Mm -hmm. That's, I think that's... Everything. Um, there is documentaries galore on yeah. this. Um, well, there's and then, documentaries and there's also movies that are made about it. Yeah. Um, and it, it... Word obviously gets back to the American government what's happened. Oh, yes. That's where I was going with that. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah. Word gets back quickly. That's what happened, right? Uh, congressman is dead, so it's this whole new fucking issue. Mm-hmm. It's not just people. Now it's, you know... Um, and I found this very, very, very interesting and I can't get over it. I found 
six different amounts of people that died that night. Interesting. Anywhere ranging from 901, mm-hmm. 903, 909. 909 is the one most commonly used. Mm-hmm. 909 people perished up to 918. That's a big difference. Yeah. It's a big difference, especially when they're there for you to count. Yeah. You know? Um, <laughs> they're not moving. Yeah. So what I have found, and I looked into this a little bit, was that um, the conspiracy theories about Jonestown. So yeah. I was like, oh, wait, there's conspiracy theories about this? Yeah. I was like, of course there is, but what is it? So one of them, and this was super interesting... The most interesting and most developed conspiracy theory I found was that there was CIA involvement. Mm. In the way that they recruited him, allowed him, gave him the resources to try mind control. Mm. And a CIA... And that's why the U.S. Embassy would give them guns. Uh huh. theory goes into why there was a CIA what do you call it, person or... Agent? Agent in the midst of all this. Oh, there was? Yes. That he, didn't come with, like... The congressman? Yeah. No. He'd been there. He's been friends with him. They've seen him together. And in the recordings, uh, because, again, he recorded everything. He's so cynical. Richard Richard Dwyer. Mm. When he sends off the people to the airstrip and when he's... Um, He's telling them, make sure Dwyer's safe. Make sure Dwyer's not there. Don't shoot anything unless, you know, if Dwyer's there. Da, 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 da. So the theory is that the three men that first got off the truck mm-hmm. to go just we're looking look for around, Dwyer. We're looking for Dwyer so that when they were just shooting at everything, yeah. they weren't going to accidentally be killing Dwyer. And that. Um, Was he ever accounted for? Yeah. Dead? He, he's not dead. Oh, he's alive. Right. What's he say about all this? He's not spoken about it. Because he's CIA. Right. He's not supposed to. Right. Interesting. He's like, what? Yeah, so um, that's one of the theories that they were using mind control. That's, that's what the loudspeakers were for. That that's what, you know, the, the I don't know. So that that's one of the, the conspiracy theories that they were mm-hmm. using this. And I don't think it's too far-fetched that they were, you know, conducting mind control experiments on this big captive audience that they already had. I don't that's a hard one for me to buy into. I'd be more inclined to think that this Richard Dwyer or whatever was there on his own accord and he was just being used as a pawn to report back to the CIA that everything was fine to keep the radar off of them. Maybe. Um oh I did forget to mention this. Oh, this is even before they went to Guyana. Jim had people sign blank pieces of paper. Yeah. To make them, to either put, like, false confessions on them, yeah. to make them seem like adulterers, to make them seem like... He would use um, it to, like, control to them. To blackmail, blackmail them. them. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, but I thought, oh, and then the Guyan, Guyanan, the Guyanan military. Yeah. And this is interesting. When they first arrived, the big discrepancy here in the amount of people that were killed, they declared, and this is the first word that got back to the U.S., that 408 people had killed themselves at the compound mm-hmm. and that 500 of them had fled into the jungle. So a lot of people think that the U... Fuck it, I'm just going to say it. That the U.S. went in, finished a job, put them back in the compound. That's dark. 
Yeah, because they'd seen too much. Uh, <laughs> and that the U.S. government also, you know, once they got there, they're the ones that said 909. What's that mean? Uh, 909 people. Oh, died. oh, 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 yeah. So, and the discrepancy, the, how the, the U.S. government, uh, how they say it happened was that people were stacked on top of each other. So the Guyanan military didn't do a good count because there was people under people or babies under like a full grown adult. So they weren't being counted for. Yeah. But that's a lot to go from 400 to 900. Yeah. That's that a, a lot. Big, big number. The footage of that, like, regardless of what theory you buy into, the footage of, that's captured of whoever it is that eventually comes into Jonestown, mm-hmm. that you can see them flying over Jonestown and all of these bodies on the ground. It's just like a sea of bodies uh-huh. is haunting. It is really, really bad. Yeah. And then also worth mentioning, there was a huge delay disposing or taking care of or giving people proper burials a lot of them and it's unknown why were illegally cremated while in guyana without like next of kin consent or family consents so they were returned to their family members back to the u.s in urns and then a lot of the ones that did make it back, it took so long, and I'm sure there had to be an investigation, but it took so long, they weren't probably taken care of, that by the time they got back and families wanted to, you know, possibly do an autopsy, autopsy on them, they were way too far decomposed. And there was no option for autopsies to be performed on any of the survivors or the, the people that perished back home. Interesting. A lot of evidence lost then. A lot of evidence lost. So none of them, there was no proper autopsies done on any of the... That is interesting. Wow, that's fascinating. Thank you for making Jonestown interesting for me again. Yeah, you're welcome. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that is crazy. I thought I knew it, but there was a lot lot. that I was like... Holy shit. Yeah. You guys, stranger and I know, danger, don't drink the Kool-Aid. All the things. Like, here are your signs. That should have been our name. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, I've seen the documentaries and the stuff like that and the footage and, like, that whole scene that happens on the airstrip is mm-hmm. just, like, it's absolutely horrible and overwhelming to, f- to imagine being in their shoes and feel like mm-hmm. you are now trapped and you're mm-hmm. not getting out. Like, that would just be horrible. I can't imagine... I, I can't. Yeah. Like pretending to be dead to survive. I mean, we've, well, you we've seen people do that. Right. Or yeah. You, it's, it's just incredible. Or to get to that point where you believe or follow someone yeah. so blindly. Man. It's nuts. It's nuts to how moldable the human mind can be. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially during, I guess, crucial part, you know, moments like either where there's social turmoil or a personal turmoil that you might be going through yeah. when you when you find that shoulder you know when you're given a safe space a yeah. safe space it can change your world and you you become devote devoted to this person yeah. or to this movement because these people really wanted this utopia of like love and peace mm-hmm. unfortunately they were being led by a wolf in sheep's clothing, is that how you say yeah. it? So this guy who who morphed from a religious leader preaching 
good things, you know, things that weren't going to be hurting anyone about yeah. love and peace and inclusivity to a murdering rapist psychopath. Right. Yeah. And if it happened just over time, mm-hmm. then people either were just not noticing it mm-hmm. or just turning, you know, or they, they justified what was happening with the good stuff that was happening. Yeah. So. Beware. Um, there's going to be a lot of really good information for you guys on this one. So I will half-ass my part of it. (laughs) Fatina does a much better job over in the group with like so much stuff. So if you want to just see like the very bare basics, as far as like the photos that we all know and love, um, you can do that and go over to the Instagram at a stranger danger podcast, email us at a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions, but the content, the content content Fatina will tell you where to find that. Yeah, the good stuff. Uh, Well, Facebook, same thing. The basics at Stranger Danger colon a true crime podcast. But like Mackenzie said, if you want the nitty gritty, the documentaries, the articles, the pictures... I don't know that we'll be able to post the gruesome pictures or graphic pictures on Instagram and stuff. I'm, I mean, I won't. Right. But. So if you are inclined to go see that, you can go join the group, which is Stranger Danger colon Murder Lovers. And you can find us on Twitter using the handle at SD True Crime Pod. Yep. Consider the Instagram and Facebook page as like the PG-13 version. And then anything that's like more explicit, you got to go over to the group. Like I said, we're not going to force feed you on the public platforms. You got to go to the private one to get that stuff. Yep. All right. Cool. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't drink the (laughs) Kool-Aid. Bye-bye. Bye.